Hello and welcome to our University of Strathclyde podcast series, run out of the world-famous School of Education, right in the heart of the beautiful city of Glasgow in Scotland. We bring you a mix of meet and academic interviews, thought pieces, conversations and provocations on all things education, to give you a glimpse into our world-leading education research here at Strathclyde and of course to stimulate your questions and thinking around the meaning, purpose and practice of education in schools, in communities, and of course, in all our lives. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the School of Education's podcast. Today, I'm really pleased um, to welcome Professor Yvette Taylor from the School of Education. Yvette's the author of the recent briefing um, for the Scottish Parliament on COVID-19 and LGBT plus life in Scotland. And today she's going to be giving us one of our many lectures on research in class and sexuality over the long term. So we've got time to hear from Yvette and then maybe we'll have a wee chance for a couple of questions afterwards. So Yvette, over to you, thank you. Thanks very much, Claire. Really looking forward to this opportunity to talk more about my research. So as I say, um, I've titled this Research in Class and Sexuality Over the Long Term. And my main concern has really been with issues of sexuality in class, and I've researched, lived and breathed these issues from 1980s Thatcherism, and I'm old enough um, to have my had my free milk snatched from me in the Glasgow classroom. And I've lived through, considered, written about these issues then, to late 1990s or 2000s, New Labour time, to the 2008 financial crisis and the period of austerity, to the crisis of Brexit, and of course, the global pandemic and climate crisis, which we're still living through. In these times, class and sexuality are and have been major social structures, impacting transitions and outcomes or who gets what. They form, I think, points of identification, politicization, and meaning making, which change and endure across time and place. I'm, in, I'm interested in these as contested, intersecting lived experiences, including in, through, and out of education, as in other social spheres. And as part of who we get to be and what we are recognised and misrecognised as being and how that comes to matter. So as a sociologist, I'm interested in education in and beyond compulsory and post-compulsory classroom contexts. So as beyond school and college or university. These are, we know, significant sites of materialising futures. But society is always educating us about our place in the world and beyond routes through education into employment or education as an age-specific experience. So education happens, of course, across the life course and is a major determinant of life course inequalities. So I'm interested in different mobilisations of education generally, including through the political project of feminism. And with that in mind, I'll give a shout out to the fantastic master's students on the MED Understanding Gender and Sexuality module, which I'm teaching on later. And in fact, we're going to be exploring gender and sexuality in the university and at a time of equality and diversity initiatives or calls for safer spaces. So I'm going to start locating my research in the here and now talking about some of my most recent work first, and then time traveling backwards to trace lines between then and now. So as you mentioned, Claire, over the last year, I've been a Scottish Parliamentary Fellow researching COVID-19 
and LGBT life in Scotland. And there's now a full briefing paper and shorter blog up in the SPICE website, which is the Scottish Parliamentary Information Centre. Notably, LGBT plus people report continued inequalities, including across health, education, employment and social settings. And these are often compounded by the pandemic. And much research has highlighted this as a group at, at more risk of inequalities. My approach has been to take account of social, cultural and economic factors, putting LGBT plus people at risk, while also trying to take care not to re-pathologise or homogenise this group. So how can we also talk about agency of difference within queer communities, where, for example, social benefits, visibility and recognition may be afforded to more normative identities or those who we recognise as fitting into standard depictions of, say, family life. In conducting that research into the impact of COVID, I was really struck by one respondent's words, and um, these words appeared in a postcard as an address back to politicians. And they said something to the effect of, I hope this last year has acted as a reminder um, that li life lived outside of the mainstream with conditions and restrictions is, is not fun and that LGBT plus people have known that for quite a long time. So I think as governments consider post-recovery plans, we arguably have a unique chance to consider what sort of normal we want to go back to or move away from and as an LGBT plus inclusive society. So keeping a, a concern with class central here also means attending, I think, to divergences within and between LGBT plus individuals, which are often homogenized in policy frames. And rather than just being at risk, there might be things that can be learned from LGBT communities or queer forms of organizing and activism, including say mutual aid initiatives or family of choice networks, which has also been a major um, interest of mine. So some interviews found it even more difficult to access healthcare at this time, including for fertility treatment or for gender affirming services and so on. And others felt more socially surveilled or others felt that living in their circumstances confounded this stay at home repetition as a safety message. There are things now which can be recommitted to, for example, LGBT inclusive education or the proposed changes to the Gender Recognition Act, where equalities issues may be sidelined or deferred, fallen off the political agenda and replaced by seemingly more urgent issues, despite the protections and um, progression of the Equality Act, say. So on that mention of the Equality Act, I'm going to turn to the project um, it's almost at completion. It's called Comparing Intersectional Life Course Inequalities Amongst LGBTQI Plus Citizens in Four European Countries, or CILIA for short. So as PI, I led the Scottish strand of one of the four European countries, also including England, Portugal and Germany. And during the fieldwork, interviews moved from being EU citizens to no longer being so even if they felt and expressed themselves to be still European. EU participants living in England and Scotland 
often found themselves entangled in bureaucracy, re-navigating re citizenship rights, including welfare, employment and residency. So during this time, I interviewed queer workers, residents and parents, as well as those without employment, unable to gain work, those with pending asylum claims, NHS workers, lawyer drivers, carers, key workers on the front line, furloughed workers, and those with families, cares and communities in and beyond the new EU-UK borders, boundaries. Some express a sense of loss of protection from the rainbow Europe as a good ally for LGBT rights, while others never felt included or protected under such a rainbow arc, and were keen to highlight class and racialized divisions in the story of rainbow Europe as a homo-nationalist one. So of significance here were respondents' investments in a sense of Scottish difference, as well as a sense of scepticism about Scottish difference, or to quote the memorable words from one interviewee who was a Scottish Asian lesbian, quote, all forms of discrimination just evolve around legislation. So she was really uncertain if this represented a moment of structural change or more of the same. And overall, the project asks, what does it mean to be a citizen? Who feels included in changing times and who is rendered more vulnerable, even as nation states tell stories of progression? I use queer feminist thinking to trouble and stretch states' claims, where citizens are often thought, often not thought of intersectionally, and where the purpose of the state might be to reproduce rather than to rectify social divisions. So class, for example, can't be a protected characteristic in a capitalist society. And protections around sexuality tend to frame these as ones of questions of recognition rather than ones of economic redistribution. I'm gonna turn back to the long periods of financial crisis and austerity, which I think we're still living with, to run a few projects together, which I undertook in those years. So I mentioned the Equality Act's protected characteristics and religion is one of these in my book, um, Making Space for Queer Identifying Religious Youth, and was published just at the time I came to Strathclyde. And at that time, I was writing against the prevailing trend which often placed sexuality and religion in contradiction to one another as inevitably clashing or competing characteristics. But we don't live our identities in discrete categories, and sometimes legislation erases these social complexities. So I think the Metropolitan Community Church at MCC, which is founded in by for LGBT community, is a good example of community-led activism and organisation preceding equality law, and long tackling questions of, of resources, which are returned to in contemporary discussions about LGBT mutual aid societies, activated in, the, in, the, in this current pandemic climate. So how to think of groups, including faith-based ones, as increasingly standing in for state resources or state redistribution? And what do religious practices tell us about secular norms? So I explored this in relation to sex education and found that faith-based schools fared no worse than their secular counterparts. Across these projects, I've been interested in what middle-classness means and does, where we sometimes attach class analysis to experiences of disadvantage, 
How is advantage produced? And what does it mean to think about queer people as also inhabiting and reproducing privilege? So in lesbian and gay parenting, secure and social and educational capitals, which was published in 2009, I showed how middle-class parents mobilize their capitals to secure a go-to phrase um, repeated by politicians, but importantly repeated by middle-class interviews to secure the best interests of, of the children. So they position themselves as active parents who planned their roots into parenting, some, sometimes through lengthy and expensive processes. They spoke of securing the desired good school, aware of how this impacted um, upon the desired good future for their, child, for their child. And some parents positioned their child as more in need of such buffering as a result of coming from a family of difference. Where lesbian and gay parents have long been accused of jeopardizing the best interests of their children, this represented an interesting moment, a sign of political entitlement perhaps, but one which ended up, ended up situating poor parenting and wrong educational or residential choices back on more working class parents. And we know that parents and families are long linked to questions of education, what skills, what, what parents, what, what families should do who's failing, who's um, succeeding. So another thing I'd like to point to is that class research has moved in and out of the social science margins. When I started researching my first book, work, Working Class Lesbian Life, Classed Outsiders, representations of working class life were, were often still old male industrial. Women were seen as beneficiaries of a new service sector economy, a feminized economy, something which I talk about in fitting into place class and gender geographies and temporalities. The fitting into place in that, in that book title has a question mark around it, where even versions of the past and the working class past are often romanticized and where being queer might be another misfit. We don't necessarily see or feel the complexity of class and sexuality in the language of social exclusion or in indexes of socioeconomic indicators, but we may feel in our history, in our past and presence, embodied in our accents, asked, avoided, or answered in the question, where are you from? So these are never ending questions. One task for me as a researcher is to deal with class and all its diversity while still, still pointing to its endurance. These are new old questions revisited over and over again. And I'm curious about the disappearance and reappearance of class. To what extent these conversations and debates are new? To what extent articulations of class are repetitions or interventions? And what norms are being reproduced in knowledge production? So to end or to, or to begin again, my talk on uh, research and class and sexuality in the long term, I'll mention the book project which I'm working on now, which is called Working Class Queers. We see heightened concerns emerging out of our current crisis about the injustice of capitalism or neoliberalism, of the need for intersectional attentiveness towards class, race, gender as a big three of social sciences, but also towards sexuality, parental status, religion, disability, 
and so on. And sometimes these are um, flagged as awkward or embarrassing, etc., that Judith Butler flagged in the 1990s. So these lists are always incomplete as are empirical projects. And I turn back to my selections to go forward with them politically. My research on sexuality and class over the long term is also a reminder to myself, in particular to um, PhD and MD students, of the writing, thinking repetitions made in writing books, articles and theses, and that these are also embodied practices with a past. I'm going to end on a school story, and some colleagues at Strathclyde will have heard this story already, and it might be framed as a question, so it might be framed as a question, what does it mean if the Professor of Education failed at school? So at school, there was a wee boy called Gordon, Gordon Blank, let's call him. I vividly remember him. He was in the top group at school and I was in the bottom, but I got and I still get such delight in remembering that Gordon would put his V-neck jumper on backwards and returning from PE. Every time I'd laugh and I think that I didn't want to be part of that top set. The world might still be governed by these back to front logics and characters, but I like to think of that moment as a possibly queer one, as well as a likely classing one. And that's part of what class and sexuality over the long term can look like in and beyond the classroom. Oh, thank you very much, Yvette. And, and I really love that phrase at the at the end, um, the idea of back to front logics, I think is, is an interesting one um, that probably applies to a lot of what you were saying. Um, in fact, that could be the title of your next book. Ah, great. <laughs> I'll finish that <laughs> first. I'll try to. <laughs> <laughs> we have to hear first. <laughs> Can I ask just a, if you you talk about intersectional attentiveness. Okay. Um, and you talk a bit about, er, earlier on, you spoke about this idea of post-recovery plans and what might society or what could society look like? Hmm. So what does it look like, intersectional attentiveness? What, what should we be doing as educators hmm. and then perhaps as a broader society? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great question. And of course, these these questions um, are repeated over the long term because they don't have easy answers. So one of my questions in my book, um, Working Class Queers, is um, why do we need the queer left now? What struggles haven't we won? Why do we have to go back to um, long term debates around the purpose of the state, around um, inequalities of class, gender, race? and so on. So have we exhausted liberal state solutions? Um, can we rely on the state um, to take care of us as citizens? What are our welfare needs? Um, and is the state sufficient? Now, I raised the, the moment of Brexit and um, the question of Scotland um, as, as attending to these questions in the here and now. So is there hopes for a better Scottish state, let's say, and that's, of course, relevant to us at Strathclyde. Um, and, and there was both sort of hope and scepticism in that moment. And I think that is also a question that's likely going to be experienced um, by different interviews according to race, class, gender, and so on. So if your experience of Scotland has been as a racist state, is a moment to imagine 
Otherwise, our, as your embodied experience suggesting that that's going to be a continuation. Intersectionality is, um, is a useful tool for me. It always has been a useful tool, um, as well as a political interruption, I think, where the project of feminism has, um, and there's long, long debates on this, um, and I think we have to go back to feminism to find ways through feminism. So I want to hold on to that as a political project, but it has um, been interrogated and interrogated itself, if you like, as um, predominantly speaking for white middle-class women. Um, so I would always inter um, locate intersectionality um, as having a life and a drive in black feminist thought. But I suppose when we're thinking about that never-ending list of race, class, gender, um, etc., we're thinking about the possibility, the political possibilities of always keeping um, those questions in mind, and that the list never ends; that it has to be um, returned to, and there, there's a political um, impetus in that return. Um, I'll actually be talking about intersectionality with my students later tonight, and they're always compelled by it. And I think um, it is compelling to think through the way that that has travelled into the popular realm. And if that is, um, if we need it to have, if it has a political purchase there and what it does there, you know, does it matter that it's become a hashtag? Um, has it become an identity as opposed to um, a way to talk through with against social structures? So I don't know. I don't know if I've answered your question about how to resolve social inequalities. I mean, that's that's kind of work still to do. Um, any ideas, Claire? Let me know. <laughs> well, maybe maybe as a way towards that, because I don't know that it's a problem. If these kind of things become hashtags if it brings it into the public domain and the mainstream domain out of um, academic circles where we might be accused of naval contemplation. Um, I think if it gets us all talking, then it's it's useful. So in thinking, I suppose, about what are the possibilities, of it, I see it linking with the work that you're doing around what it means to be a citizen. Mm -hmm. And I think given that as we're speaking, COP26 is in full flight, um, there are clear tensions between citizenship rights and human rights, given that citizenship is a political status, I suppose, so bold, um, it's not a bold question, it requires a bold answer, I suppose. What could or should citizenship in Scotland look like? Well, I mean, so where are we at now? What is Scotland saying and particularly what's Scotland saying in one of my interests in terms of LGBT plus rights and inclusion. So Scotland is making quite bold and bombastic claims around being world leading in that respect. And um, as I was talking, I used um, the idea of homonationalism. And I think um, on the one hand, we can welcome state changes that, are, that promise um, more equality, um, we could have the Equality Act, we have Same-Sex Marriage Act, we might welcome these. But I think it's also worth, as, um, as a sociologist, as people in, across the social sciences, pausing um, and being slightly sceptical, um, rather than just celebratory, because there's questions about who gets what, who's seen in those mo moments of state recognition, and does it deliver, um, or does it become a 
a rhetoric or a, a policy gloss that glosses over the fact that maybe people don't want that state recognition. Um, and I, I use the phrase queer to kind of um, allude to anti-normative presences or um, other ways of being. Um, so do we want to be recognised by the state or do we want to maybe sit under the radar too? Should we be suspicious of state promises? So um, the, the promise again for LGBT inclusion across the curriculum, like that can be welcomed. Um, mm -hmm. But I think when we hear that bound up with, um, say, the phrasing of um, world leading, um, we might want to we might want to question that and look at other comparative examples. So I think that that's part of the work that I'm doing when I'm questioning these categories of say citizenship or mm -hmm. the acronym LGBT plus. Um, who's included under those terms? Um, and what what might that what possibilities might that miss out? Mm. I think as well, it's interesting, this idea of the state, you know, the state's an entity, isn't it? It's almost abstracted from us. And, and for me, it suggests that there's scope for people power, um, that, that people are part of the state in one way or another. And potentially, I suppose, groups that you're working with or the kind of research that you're doing is one way to shape and mould that state um, either covertly or um, explicitly and I think that's why it's useful that people like you that are doing the kind of work that you're doing are involved with Scottish Parliament um, to do the kind of work you were doing around that space briefing that, that you mentioned as part of your talk and that I alluded to in the, in the opening comments. Mm. It strikes me um, as someone who also had her milk snatched while she was in primary school, that um, for all the title of this was called Research in Class and Sexuality Over the Long Term, mm. it, I think you could reframe that as over infinity because it doesn't seem like um, there is going to be an end to it. And I don't know whether or not there's an aspiration to, um, to reach some kind of classless state. I don't mean state in the sense that I was meaning a second ago, but a classless society, I suppose. Um, or whether or not it's something that we want to retain. Um, so I suppose all, overall, it's, it's not something that's going away anytime mm. soon. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't look like you're going to be redundant anytime soon right. in terms of research. <laughs> There will always there will always be things to write about. These are always happening, right? And they're um, lived and breathed, and they're they're lived in differently. So of course, yeah, class class looks different to the mm. classroom now than um, when we both got our, our milk snatched. Um, but does it do the same thing? Does it mean that actually some people have and some people have not? Have we called it different terms and names? Mm. And do, to what extent does that matter? Mm -hmm. um, or is it, you know, the same thing being repackaged in different different ways? Um, you know, class has always been complex. I, I used to get like quite frustrated as an early um, career researcher that I would always be returned to the the question of 
ah, but how are you defining class? And now I feel more able to deflect that because I don't think any serious class um, theorist or thinker um, assumes that class is easy to name or to speak of, um, but we likely all know about its positionings, its mispositionings, um, and we likely can feel it um, and we can hear it. We can hear it in our accents, can't we? Um, so I'm interested in all of those things, but that means sometimes it's hard to, it's hard to finish the book. Or maybe finish the book and start your new one. Um, you're back to front logics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do. Um, I am still like you put your you put your V-neck jumper on backwards. <laughs> yeah, I, I quite like the idea. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think room for subversion is is required. But this and, is this is also true. Yeah, if if um, if the boy known as Gordon is out there, him um, please be in touch. <laughs> <laughs> if he's out there and he's listening to the podcast. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Yvette. I think there's there's loads to think on there. And I think it's also really nice to hear the connections that um, you're making with your, your own students um, and, and taking them forward. Um, because as someone who's had their milk snatched, it ages you. So we do need people that are going to follow in your footsteps. So thank you very much. Thanks to you, Claire. That was great. Thank you for listening in to our Strathclyde Education Podcast Series. We'll be back soon with another episode.